Well, good morning, Five Points Community Family. It is a joy to be with you this day. Uh, If you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. And as you're turning there, uh, would you also keep your thumb there and turn to Acts chapter 2. We will be in two passages this morning. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of the things that they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech." So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because from there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now flip over to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And there they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at, the sound of, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were be- bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated, and would you pray with me as you are seated? Our great Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that we might meditate upon it day and night, that you have written your law upon our hearts, that we might live in accordance to it. And Father, as we meet together uh, each week and we desire to worship and glorify you through the expounding of your word, Help us to reflect on the fact that it is not a human speaking through these words, but it is your Holy Spirit communicating to us. 
Lord, I ask that you would use me this morning, even in a way that might bring glory to your name and help me to set aside anything that I might have uh, prepared and that you would solely speak through me alone. So Lord, bless this time in your word this morning. Amen. In the year 1436, in the city of Mainz, Germany, there was a young goldsmith named Johannes Gutenberg who invented a device that would forever revolutionize the world. Of course, we know this as the printing press. And with this one device, he launched a revolution called the printing revolution that would sweep across Europe and spread throughout the entire world. Gutenberg used metal alloy printing types and using these would then allow texts, instead of where they were once translated and written down by hand, taking a very long time, they could now be printed en masse very quickly. Of course, the only book that ever came out of Gutenberg's printing shop was one book, the Holy Bible. The scriptures came out and revolutionized the world. At that point in time in history, the Bible was solely written in the Latin language. Moving forward a little bit in the timeline, in the, year, in the early 1500s, there was a Roman Catholic theologian named Desiderius Erasmus. And though he was dedicated to the Church of Rome, he took it upon himself to compile numerous manuscripts from the Greek and put them all together. And what this became was called the Latin Vulgate. This Latin Vulgate then fell into the hands of a young monk named Martin Luther, who used this to translate into German. Right? This was a scandal all throughout the Christian world that someone would take the language of the church, Latin, and take the scriptures and put them into the hands of the people through uh, translation into German. So in 1552, Luther completed his translation into Greek, and the Reformation spread throughout the rest of Europe. When the Reformation reached the shores of a tiny North Atlantic country in the mid-16th century named Iceland, uh, there was a translation that then needed to be available there to the people in that nation. And Bishop Guthbrander Thorlaxen took it upon himself to translate from German then into Icelandic. And they have since had the Bible in their own language since 1584. From the very beginning, one of the hallmarks of the Protestant Reformation was this idea of getting the Word of God back into the hands of the people, right? removing it from the power of the church elite, the clergy, and allowing men and women sitting in pews and in benches, sitting there in the congregation, to have access to the Word of God for themselves. And as we look at history— we see this idea of, of language. What I want to, us to see this morning is as we take an overview of this grand biblical theological framework of how God, since the very beginning, has used language, has used the, the spoken and the written word to both divide and also to unite his people for the glorious resurrection power for the glorious framework of redemption. So let's dig into our text this morning, uh, these two passages. So as we begin in Genesis chapter 11, uh, backing up a little bit, if you look back at Genesis chapter 10, you'll see what is called the table of nations. 
And this nation, these, this table of nations uh, is following uh, Noah's three sons and their descendants, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, these families of the earth that were dispersed over the face of the earth after the flood. And Genesis chapter 11, as we pick up with this, the, the Tower of Babel, as it's often called, uh, this is basically zooming in on why the table of nations came about in the first place. So if we recall in the book of Genesis, in the very beginning, uh, the first command that God gave to Adam, to his original creation, was fill the earth and subdue it, right? Rule over the creation as God's image bearers. And uh, though Adam and Eve, uh, they, they did not, of course, fulfill this. They rebelled in their sin as they ate from the fruit of the tree. Likewise, these people of Babel, though they understand and they know what God commands of them, they seek to go about establishing a name for themselves instead. So let's dig in. This passage begins, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And while we don't know exactly how much time transpired between the great flood of Noah's day and these events that take place at Babel, uh, it's not difficult to comprehend that this is still a relatively small group of people, right? The, the scripture tells us that this is, is essentially the expanse of humanity all together in one group. If you look at uh, Genesis 10.25, it refers to this man named Peleg. And it says that in, uh, in his day, the earth was divided. And many scholars take this idea to mean that in the days of Peleg was the day when the nations of the earth were divided across the earth. And if that is true, and there's no reason to, to believe that it's not, this would indicate that the Tower of Babel and the events thereof took place four generations after Noah and after his day. Which would mean that in all likelihood, Noah himself was present at the events of Babel. You can imagine a man who has taken his family through the floodwaters, and yet here he sees once again the rebellion of mankind as they seek to make a name for themselves. The passage continues, it says that they migrated from the east into the land of Shinar, into a plain in the land of Shinar. And throughout a lot of Genesis, what we see in Scripture is this language of moving east. And whenever we, we hear this, we need to reflect back to the Garden of Eden, where God kicked Adam and Eve out, and they begin to move east of Eden. And whenever Genesis specifically uses this language, it is referring to mankind moving progressively farther away from the presence of God in the Garden. So it's ironic, of course, that uh, they are moving east out of the presence of God when the very thing they are about to try to do is to build a tower into the heavens to reach God. Right? They're going to do it in their own power and in their own way. And when Scripture speaks of this land called Shinar, what's interesting is that uh, this is a plain that geographically would have been located between uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates River in the Middle East. Uh, this land is now what we refer to as Mesopotamia, which many archaeologists and scholars refer to Mesopotamia as the cradle of human civilization. Uh, and the language that they spoke, which is called Sumerian, is the, he is, uh, is the word that we use, and the Hebrew word for that is Shinar. 
So we see this, this perfect unity of what scholars and, and archaeologists and historians see and the word of God itself. Right? We know that we can trace uh, a human civilization back to this very place, and this is exactly what God's word tells us. So the people say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. They begin to formulate, how can they make a name for themselves? How can they boost their own pride? And of course, again, it's, it's humorous because they're making a name for themselves before who? They're the only humans on the planet right now. So they're making a name for themselves almost like, like saying to God, we are the ones in control here. So they are seeking to make a name for themselves before the God that judged them just a few generations ago. And of course, if I can put myself in their shoes, uh, building a tower into the heavens when the whole world has just been covered with water, you can understand why they would want to build as high as they can, high as they can to prevent God's judgment again. They may be saying, the higher we can build, the more and more we can escape from God's judgment. So they seek to make a name for themselves for the sole purpose, as it says, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So they know exactly what God has called them to do, right? Be fruitful and multiply. The, the command given first to Adam, and then later in Genesis, after the ark settles and Noah and his family come out, God again says to Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. But these people, of course, have have absolutely no desire to follow through the, the, the plan according to what God has said. And as we look at a tower, right, we look at a, a sort of an empire, somewhere where mankind is able to boast of its own pride, there was one commentator that said, every government that seeks to build an empire requires two things, a center of unity and a motive for expansion. So a center for unity, of course, we see this tower that they're seeking to build and a motive for expansion so that they may proclaim before God and before uh, each other that they are the ones in control. As we move forward in the story, again, uh, we see some humor here as it says that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower as they are trying to build this tower into the heavens. God is like, okay, I need to come down in order to even see what you are trying to do. So though they may try to do this, uh, God in his sovereignty uh, understands that there's no way they can do this. And they're referred to as the children of man. Again, tracing this theme through Genesis, the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent, this idea that the seed of the serpent is continuing to rebel against their creator. And God, in his sovereign uh, view of all of creation and all of history, he says, this is the only, be only the beginning of what they will attempt to do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So God knows that if he allows them to pursue and persist in their rebellion against him, they will be able to achieve many feats that will just multiply the sin in their midst. Right? It's not a compliment for God to say nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. This is a warning. This is a, a proclamation of judgment because of the, the depravity of the human heart is so deep that we will seek to do anything that we can to get out from under the, the, the rule of God. 
if you uh, also, again, going back to Genesis uh, earlier, uh, after Adam had sinned, he said, uh, uh, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So again, there's this parallel of God restricting mankind from pursuing his sin even farther. And of course, we know then Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. So God goes down and he confuses their language here at the, the Tower of Babel. So just like God removing Adam and Eve from the Garden of Life, God removes the understanding, the communication, lest the people would continue to rebel in their arrogance and in their pride. Verse 8 says, So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it becomes Babel. And throughout the rest of Scripture, especially as we move forward into the book of Revelation, there's this idea of Babel. Babel is used all throughout Scripture to represent the corporate gathering of mankind's rebellion against God. Right? Babel. Babylon. Uh, the very word that we use in English, babble, means to uh, speak in a way that's unintelligible. Right? We babble. And so uh, God, though mankind sought to thwart God in his judgment, God again steps down and judges mankind for their arrogance. And he disperses them over the face of the earth. So as we look at this, this story, right, the Tower of Babel, we praise God in the fact that this is not, of course, where the story ends. But what I, we want to look at as before we move into our second section here is what the judgment at Babel tells us about God and his redemptive plan for history. So five things that we see. The where, the when, the who, the what, and the why. So where? Where did Babel take place? Well, it took place, again, in Shinar, right? The cradle of human civilization. And this event becomes the, the epicenter of human civilization spreading across to the four corners of the globe. It becomes the birthplace of human culture. And it propels forward the entire history of what we understand as we look back at all that has taken place in the world. We, look at, we, we, we view the different language groups as finding their core in this event in Babel. Mandarin, Spanish, Swahili, Russian, English, Portuguese, Arabic, Punjabi, Hindi, all of these different language groups. And linguists today estimate that there are over 7,100 different language groups across the globe, and all of them trace to this very event in Genesis chapter 11. When does this take place? It takes place chronologically directly following the flood. Right? Noah uh, is, is understood to be a type of Christ. But yet Noah was not the final savior, though he was faithful in the task that God gave him, uh, the fact that all of this takes place after God has already judged the entire population demonstrates to us that there's still a Messiah to come at this point in the story. Right? Mankind's sin and rebellion has still not been dealt with, though the earth has been completely changed, and all of humanity, set aside one family, has been decimated in this global flood. 
there's still a redeemer that needs to come needs to come to reunite God and mankind. Who? Who is present here at Babel? This is all of mankind at this point in history. This is every single person that stems from the family line of Noah. And what this means is as as we look at this story and the strife between cultures all throughout history, we all trace back to this final this 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 core. We all trace back to this point in history so that there's no culture that can claim superiority one over the other, right? Though though we see this all the time in the world around us as cultures infiltrate other cultures as wars break forth through na- uh, 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 within na- nations we see all of this take place but yet the fact that all of us stem back from this very point in history which was a judgment upon mankind demonstrates to us that we are all regardless of uh, our ethnicity our skin color um, whatever it is we are all deeply in need of a savior In the first chapters of Genesis, we see this division between man and God in the fall. Moving forward, we see uh, after the fall and the the following chapters, we see this division between man and nature, as nature, as, as the floodwaters burst forth. And then here at Babel, we see the division of the final relationship between mankind and mankind. These severed relationships uh, and uh, across cultural and ethnic uh, differences. What about the what? Right, what does this judgment upon Babel tell us about the history of redemption? When we look at these cultures, right, each culture is, is represented by uh, beliefs, different values, different norms, uh, different symbols and different languages. And all of these things lead us to, to battle against one another as cultures take up arms against each other. And finally, the why. Why did God, uh, in, his, in, in his decree, uh, plan that this event at the Tower of Babel would take place? Well, moving forward after chapter 11 of Genesis, uh, which between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 11, it covers about 1,100 years, and every human is represented within those 1,100 years. And yet after chapter 11, moving forward, starting in chapter 12, the entire story of the Old Testament goes from speaking of all of mankind to this one man named Abram. And tracing Abram and his family line through the history of Israel, through uh, the, the, the birthplace of Israel as a nation, right? their wanderings in the wilderness, their exodus from Egypt, the whole rest of this Old Testament goes from speaking of every culture at Babel to focusing solely on this one family line. And of course, as we think of Abram, right? Abram was a historic man living in an actual time in history, who had his own culture, his own norms, his own values and beliefs. And we all experience these same types of things. And through, so in the middle, between Babel and where we are moving in just a moment to Pentecost, the entire history of Israel takes place until the point where the darkness can no longer hold back 
the Messiah. And of course, we know the Messiah bursts forth onto the scene in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the greater Adam, the greater Noah, the greater David, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And Jesus was born into an obscure, tiny little city in a tiny little nation in a time that the Roman Empire was ruling over them, right? This obscure Middle Eastern first century man who was claiming to be the very son of God in the flesh. So we trace from Babel leading up to Christ and his victorious death and resurrection, and then we get to Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. So this takes place after Christ has resurrected back to the right hand of his father. And he has promised that he would send a helper to empower his disciples. As we know, Matthew chapter 28, right? Christ gave his disciples this, what we call the great commission to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And yet he is giving this to 12, at this point, 11, 11 men, 11 Middle Eastern men, most of who uh, are, are obscured in, in and of themselves, and they had fled from Christ at his most vulnerable time. And yet Christ gives this commission to reach the ends of the earth with his gospel message. So Christ, after he ascends, he promises that he will uh, give them this helper. And he tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait for this helper to come. And this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, now this day of Pentecost was also called the Feast of Weeks, which took place 50 days after the Passover celebration. Another way to translate this is when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. You might understand this as, as the fact that Christ in his perfect atonement he was the perfect Passover lamb, and now this day of Pentecost is going to be the final and last and penultimate Pentecost to take place. And all the disciples, it says, they were all together in one place. They were all staying together. Sounds very much like the Babel account, right? They're all together staying in this tight little knit group. And there came from heaven this helper, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Just as Christ had come down from heaven in his humanity and had returned to heaven, now the Spirit descends as tongues of fire, right? We see here the deity of the Holy Spirit who strengthens and equips his disciples. And again, reflecting back on Babel, just as God came down from his throne to see what mankind was trying to do, now it is the Spirit who comes down to empower his disciples. And it says that the Spirit comes down in divided tongues. Interestingly enough, uh, this word here, divided, when, which in the Greek is diamerizo, is the same word from Genesis chapter 10 that Peleg, his name translates from Hebrew into Greek. It's the same word. So again, representing that after these nations had been divided at Babel, now these divided tongues come down from heaven to bring the people back together and to unite them through the Holy Spirit. So scripture says that they were all filled 
with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Now, what's beautiful about this is that under the, 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 the story of the Old Covenant, right, the Old Covenant people, though the Holy Spirit was active and working at times, the Holy Spirit was not a guarantee for the people of the Old Covenant. Right? In, the, in the, the, the nation of Israel, there were many who were outwardly a part of the covenant, but inwardly were not, as they did not have faith in Yahweh. But here in the new covenant, this gift of the Holy Spirit is a promise to every single person who puts their faith in Christ. Whereas in the old covenant, uh, one story that's, that's spoken about, Moses uh, as during his ministry, Joshua comes to Moses and says, uh, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp, and Joshua the son of Nun uh, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. So there's two prophets who are prophesying, and Joshua goes to Moses and says, Stop them from prophesying. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Right? Moses longed for a day when the Holy Spirit would be working and active in the lives of all of God's people. And here at Pentecost, as the Spirit unites together all of the disciples and they begin to speak in these tongues, this is the fulfillment of what, uh, what this, this prophecy from Moses spoke of. Another prophecy of the Old Testament found from Joel chapter 2, speaks of the Spirit descending upon all of the people of God. And this is the, the age of the expansion of God's people, uh, God's kingdom. And this is exactly what takes place on the day of Pentecost. So unlike Babel, right, which is a pursuit of mankind to uh, erect for himself a tower representing his arrogance, uh, the Spirit is the one who gives the disciples this power. It is a, an event holy of God. Nothing that mankind can add to it in order to make it happen or take place. Mankind, in, in and of ourselves, we cannot yield the results that the day of Pentecost does. Moving forward in this passage, in, 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 chap in verse 5, uh, we see this list of all of these Jews from different areas of the known world at that point in time. There's this list, and it says that they were from every nation under heaven. Now, some uh, more liberal scholars will look at this, and people who are unbelievers will say, well, clearly this could not be true, that there were people from every nation uh, here at the day of Pentecost. And so they dismiss it as just one more place that they believe Scripture to be incorrect. But again, this parallel between the day of Pentecost and the Tower of Babel, we see if you look at the table of nations that we looked at in Genesis chapter 10 at the very beginning, this table of nations, which is where all of Shem, Ham, and Japheth's descendants are from, if you take that and you map it over all of these nations that are mentioned in this, this passage in Acts, if you take those two and map them over each other, they're identical, right? It's almost as though God is saying all of the people that were divided at the day of Pentecost, they have all now come back to Jerusalem for this, this very moment 
in redemptive history. The multitude comes together and it says, it uses these words, they were bewildered, they were amazed, they were astonished at what was taking place. They each hear the disciples proclaiming the gospel message in their own language. And yet these men are all from the same part of Israel, right? They're all Galileans. They all, not only do they all have one language, they all have a very distinct dialect. There's no way, apart from the glorious work of God, that these disciples should be able to know these languages. And yet it is the Spirit that gives them utterance. So all of these men that are proclaiming this powerful working of God, and yet it says in verse 12, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine, right? So even though this, there's no way this could be anything other than the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, there, of course, are people who will scoff at what God is doing. And when they say, what does this mean? This again demonstrates that though they can see with their eyes what is taking place, and though they hear what is being said, they do not truly see, or, and they do not truly hear, apart from this working of the Spirit. This is then what Paul writes in Romans chapter 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him, in, in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Right, so though they can see and hear exactly what is going on around them, they still need someone to explain it to them. And Acts then moves forward into Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost. One, uh, one commentator on this passage said that Pentecost is a down payment on the last day that is presented in the book of Revelation. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is the seal of God's people, who preserves us until the very end, this day inaugurates the new creation, right? It's this tension that we see throughout the rest of the New Testament between the already and the not yet, right? God is and continues to be building his kingdom. Christ truly is reigning from on high, seated at the right hand of God. And yet we still look forward to that day when the not yet becomes our reality. So as we uh, went through the where, the when, the who, the what, and the why of Babel, let's also apply this to Pentecost. So where does it take place? Well, it takes place in the city of Jerusalem, the holy city. Throughout all of the Old Testament, this is where the people are leading up to as they finally build this temple that is supposed to be the house of God the city of God, the place where God dwells with his people, and yet it was still a shadow, this place, this city of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost becomes the birthplace of the early church, and from there on out, they spread throughout the corners of the globe. Jerusalem becomes the epicenter of the expansion of the kingdom of God. The fact that this takes place 
after Christ had already ascended, demonstrates once again to us that Christ truly is ruling and reigning over this world. Right? The Psalms speak often of Christ ruling until he makes his enemies a footstool. Psalm chapter 2 speaks of uh, Christ as the, the, the one true Son of God. Psalm chapter two, uh, Psalm two actually also says, "You know, why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain?" So Christ, having ascended back to heaven, and Pentecost taking place after that, is one more way that we can have confidence that Christ is exactly who He said He was. Who does uh, this task? Who was it given to? And who did the Spirit descend upon in these, this, this first moment of Pentecost? Well, it was the disciples. Right? It was 11 weak vessels that abandoned Christ at his darkest hour, and yet these are the same men that God used to take the gospel through the globe. This demonstrates to us that the great commission that Christ gave to his disciples, it doesn't require the learned. It doesn't require the uh, the professionals. The Great Commission is a task given to the lowliest of people. Right? The Great Commission is given to every single person who proclaims Christ as his or her Lord and Savior. And so, though we all play different roles, each and every single task that propels forward the spreading of the gospel to the nations is vitally important. What takes place after the day of Pentecost? Well, here we see, and especially through Paul's letters, local churches are planted all throughout the known world. In Rome, in Philippi, in Colossae, in Thessalonica, all of these local bodies are planted and strengthened through the ministry of the apostles and those whom the apostles the apostle sent out. And so, what we see, the, the New Testament model for missions, is that the planting and strengthening of local churches is where missions takes place as the church prepares, raises up, and then continues to send forth disciples who will make Christ known across the globe. And the why. Ultimately, why between Babel and Pentecost as the languages are divided at Babel and come back together and reunited at Pentecost. What does this tell us? Right? Why do we understand these things to have taken, pla taken place? And what we see is that God is so greatly glorified in the diversity of his people. People from every culture, from every tribe, from every nation and every tongue, glorifying him together through the one most important thing that unifies us, the blood of Jesus Christ. Right, we're about to take the Lord's Supper in a few moments here. And the Lord's Supper, the, the, the communion table, is meant to be a, an image for us of all dividing lines being broken down as we come together and share in one meal together. Right, nothing stands in the way for those who are truly united through the blood of Christ. So a few points as we uh, conclude this morning. 
Three points of application. First of all is the plan. From the very beginning, we see that God has worked through the dividing and the reuniting of languages. Right? It has always been throughout all of the history of redemption, it has been God's plan for the nations to delight in him. Right? Though, though most of the Old Testament focuses on the nation of Israel, there's also this idea of the, sh- the sojourner, the stranger, who could unite with the people of Israel as they came under the submission of the law of God and looked forward to the, to the coming of the Messiah. So from the very beginning, God has always delighted in his people being a diverse people. And therefore, our passion must be the same goal. Right? We must pursue uh, the, the, the beautiful diversity of God's people as we take the gospel to the nations. Listen to what Micah chapter 4 says. It shall, so it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come, saying, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations from far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. You know, as we live in a relatively peaceful nation, but a nation that undeniably is continuing to reject what we know to be the truth of God's word. We know that there will be days when trial and tribulation will come, and from some of you, trial and tribulation certainly has already come. And we have brothers and sisters all across this world that are facing war and famine and plague. And so to hear this promise of God that there will be a day when nation shall not lift up, nation, lift up sword against nation anymore, that ought to encourage us as we pursue the plan of God in taking the gospel to the nations. Secondly is the power. Right? What is it that is the empowering force in the proclamation of the gospel? And of course, this is the blood of Christ alone. Right? There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved, as our Savior himself said. When Jesus was uh, preparing for his death on the cross, he said, This voice has come for your sake and not for mine, for now is the judgment of the world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus, through his glorious, powerful death and resurrection, draws men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation unto himself. And that means that the power of Christ, as we go forth to uh, fulfill the Great Commission through the power of the Spirit, what we must be doing is proclaiming that power. 
right? A, a, a task and a mission that does not preach the gospel is not actually fulfilling anything. So uh, you, you may very well have heard the, the phrase that's all too popular in our day, right? Preach the gospel and use words if necessary. That is impossible. Uh, we have to use words in order to preach the gospel because the gospel is good news. And so we go to the nations and we proclaim the gospel through his word alone, through what he has given us to say. And finally, the plan, the power, and lastly is the perseverance. As we prepare, as you go to your neighbors, as you go to the nations, as we live in a world that is so interconnected now that the nations and our neighbors are quickly becoming the same thing, right? We don't live in a divided world anymore. We're so interconnected. But we see the testimony of the early church and many of our brothers and sisters who have endured the worst of the worst in order to proclaim the gospel to the nations. And yet it is the Holy Spirit that preserves us to that last day. Right? The, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a seal. Paul in Philippians chapter 1 says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will surely bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So as the Holy Spirit gave the first disciples the power to press on, even in the midst of the most difficult tribulation, that same Spirit, when you come to faith in Christ, lives within you, indwells you, so that you can also have that preserving grace of our great God. Listen to this. This is the final image uh, that we look forward to from Revelation chapter 7. As John had his vision of the final day, he writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing together around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, you have given us such a glorious view. You've allowed us to look into the work that you have been accomplishing from eternity past until this day when we will all together around the throne proclaim in one voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Father, we know uh, it is your desire, and therefore it is also our desire. It is your plan, and therefore it is the plan that we pursue to see the nations, the cultures, the languages of this world all united together through the blood of the Lamb. Father, we know that this task is 
impossible to us. Because we are weak and frail vessels who have no power, no strength in and of ourselves. And yet you give us this task and you give us the tools, you give us the strength and the encouragement, and ultimately you give us your very spirit in order to press on towards that goal. So Father, I pray that as we head out this morning that you would empower us, that you would strengthen us, and that you would help us to fix our eyes upon Christ who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, if there is anyone sitting here this morning that has not yet come to recognize Christ as their Savior may now be the very day of salvation. Would you pour their, your spirit upon them as well as their hearts might be changed from a heart of flesh? Lord, we ask that you would even do this work, and would you use us in order to do it? It's in your great name we pray. Amen.